Amen. All right. Well, hi, everyone. Well, yeah. Yeah, we'll see if I... Uh, I'll keep you awake. All right? I'll just randomly yell. So if you thought you were going to drift off a little bit, I'll get you. I'll get you. Um, all right. So... Real quick, uh, touch and base, anything that uh, God's been revealing to you, anything that kind of pinged on some stuff that we talked about last time, maybe even things that you've been reflecting on throughout the series. Anybody got anything that's, that's on their heart or top of mind? Anybody got anything like that? Yeah? No? Yes, sir. The ministry of the Yeah. Yeah, ministry's not always supposed to be easy. Fallen people, fallen world, that's it. And we're going to talk about that actually quite a bit uh, this evening in talking about when Moses got pushed too far, right? That's actually, we're going to grab three stories specifically. I'll get into that in a moment. But I want to begin with uh, a super old quote. People are like tea bags. You guys know this one? That you know what's really in them when they get in hot water. Yeah? You guys ever heard that one? That's an old one. Uh, people are like tea bags. You know what's really in them when they get in hot water. Um, there are times when God pushes us too far. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, God will never give us more than we can handle. Uh, if you have said that yourself, go ahead and repent. That is unbiblical. And uh, it is actually illogical uh, when you look at it, the world. I know it's comforting. Uh, it's just wrong, right? And, and, and I'm going to tell you kind of why. So it's logically incorrect due to, due to the suicide rate of Christians. Yeah, just think through it. God will never give you more than you can. I don't Okay, so what's your definition of more than you can handle? Because if Christians take their own life, clearly it is more than they could handle. What's your other indicator? Yeah? And it is this whole idea of saying, well, how do you know what is more than you can handle? And we kind of kick back into these 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9, right? We love these passages. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. When we have these, and we make little refrigerator magnets out of them, and we're like, woo, God is always going to let me have an out or an easy time. The same gentleman that wrote that wrote this, Colossians 1, 8 through 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, we despaired of life itself. Same author, same Apostle Paul. So which is it? The fact remains, it is not biblically accurate to say God will not give you more than you can handle. But here's the truth and why we have good news. Because God goes beyond us. Yeah? When our rope ends, God's doesn't end. Impossible is merely a line item for God right? Because once we get to impossible, we're like, that's the end of the agenda. God's like, oh, hold on a second, right? God knows how to put together broken pieces. He knows how to bring us back from the brink. And here's the deal. He always knows the way back home through the maze. 
How many of you take comfort in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. That's kind of a, that's kind of a soothing one, yeah? And here's what's so beautiful about it is that the shepherd says, I take you out and I will walk you through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm going to get you what you need and I'm going to get you back home. I'm quite certain, I don't know, if you've ever had a desire to study that, you have to read Philip Keller's book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. If you have not read that one, man, you are missing out. That is old school. I don't know, it was made in the 70s or whatever. That is one of the best books ever on that. And pretty much one of the things that he says, and he is a shepherd, is that, wow, sheep are dumb. Now, (laughs) here's the interesting thing about that analogy. Sheep are not going to find their way back. But the shepherd always knows how to get back. I would imagine that sheep panic quite a bit. He talks a lot about how sometimes sheep will, if they get a little bloated, uh, which sometimes <laughs> happens when I go to a buffet, that they roll over on their back and they can't get back over, right? Because, and, and think about it, why they're so scared all the time, why they're so helpless. They're a huge cotton ball. They don't have any means of defense. Uh, they can bite you. That's about all they can do. But what are they going to do? Like squish you? Like they can't really uh, like hit you? The, nothing really happens. They are kind of easy pickings. So, of course, they get in trouble. Of course, things are bigger than them. Of course, it's over their head. That's why there's a shepherd. He's with them, and he's not afraid of what they're afraid of. Amen? Yeah. Luke 18, 27. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Yeah? But it's very important that we factor in the phrase too much into our faith. you got to factor in too much into our faith. The vast majority of people, including Christians, are living off a false assumption that God won't let anything bad happen, and then unfortunately bad things happen to them, and when it happens, people abandon their faith because God lied. God didn't lie. He never even signed that. He never signed a contract that if we are good kids, nothing bad would happen to us. In fact, he gave us a warning, well, bad things are going to happen. He actually said it right out of the get-go. I have always said that if suicide is an option, life will push you to the point of suicide. If divorce is an option, marriage will push you to the point of divorce. If giving up your faith is an option, life will push you to the point of giving up your faith. And you said, so what's your point? My point is we have to settle way before we get there that it's not an option. It is not on the table. And in in order to do that, how do we get such a secure foundation that would be able to say that? We have to settle it once and for all today why we are Christians. We are not Christians because it works for us. We are Christians because it's reality. If Christianity is reality, God is more real than anything we do. The supernatural is more real than the natural. God was here first, and then we came in. He's the prime mover. He's the more important. Therefore, he's the more legit, right? We are coming in second. He is true reality. And if he's true reality, how can you stop reality? You can be rebellious. You can give up. You can go and cry. You can go hide in your room. But I'm telling you right now, you can't stop. That's like saying, I refuse to breathe air. You can't do that. 
And that's where I stand in my life as I made a decision a long time ago. I am a Christian because it's reality. I am a Christian because there is a God, period. And he has expectations and a relationship with me. And for that reason, I can't walk away from the faith. I can be rebellious, I can be a jerk, I can do bad things, I can sin, I can do all that. And trust me, I'm very capable and good at all of that. But I can't stop believing in what's real. You see, when bad things happen to us and our faith is flimsy, we blame and run away and give up. And I don't ever want to see that happen. You know what I mean? Uh, Jesus uh, pushes us sometimes on purpose. Now, most of the time in life, it's just circumstances. Broken world, broken people, tarred. That's normally how it goes. But sometimes Jesus is poking you down the plank. And he ah, falls off into the water and you're like, oh, I can't believe Jesus did that to me. And you're like, well, does Jesus really do that? Let me give you a scenario. Jesus is out teaching uh, and he has hundreds of disciples. Everybody's all over the place. And he says this, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. No qualifier. What the heck? That's a terrible message. Right? And everyone's like, uh, I don't really know what to do with that. So a bunch of people are like, gosh, this guy's weird and everything. And they start to kind of back off. And then his disciples go, dude, that was really weird. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And Jesus goes, oh, you thought that was bad? It's only going to get worse. And then he asked them this question. John 6, 66. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believed and we've come to know you're the Holy One of God. Jesus was pushed back, pushed back, pushed back. And then when they thought, well, aren't you going to be not? And you shove them again. Are you going to walk away? They had to get to the point where they go, where are we going to go? I got nothing else. There's no other savior that showed up. There's nobody else that is going to rescue me. There's no other anointed one. There's no other. It's just you. Lord, if you push me away, I got nowhere to go. He said, that's all I wanted to hear. So we're going to study when Moses gets pushed too far. How does he respond? We're going to cover three stories. We're going to cover Korah's rebellion, the water coming out of the rock, and the bronze serpent. If you are not familiar with those stories, they're awesome. All right? If you already know these stories, you go, yeah, yeah, kid, go ahead, blah, blah. Just be nice to us, right? Pretend like you don't know. Go, <gasps> when I say something impressive. All right, here we go. First one is a dual rebellion rises up against Moses, Right? And here's what happened. There's a guy, the first rebellion, and like I said, there's a dual one, so there's two groups. First guy, his name is Korah. Korah says he's a Levite. Anybody remember where all the priestly line comes through? It comes through the tribe of Levi, okay? So he's a Levite, but the way that it worked was that priests were one level, and everybody that was born as a Levite was another level, okay? So if we're going to talk about later on, 
the Levites were the priest helper guys. They would carry stuff, but they didn't get a chance to do it. Priests did. Priests got to go before God directly. So there was a bit of a hierarchy there. So they're all Levites, and they're noticing that Aaron is the high priest. Moses gets to go in and talk to God, and all the priests get to do the coolest stuff. So he starts a rebellion with other leaders, 250 leaders. That's a lot of leaders, man. It's hard to get anybody to do anything. It's hard to get this whole group to go get ice cream. You understand what I'm saying? And so he got 250 family chiefs of the Levites to come along with him, and this was his message to them. We have to go confront Moses because who does he think he is? Are we not all of the same family line? He and Aaron are of the tribe of Levi. We're of the tribe of Levi. Who are you, dude, that you think you can do all that? And what, we're all going to do what, carry your gear? You are way too arrogant. You have gone too far. You now say that you're more spiritual and more holy. If you're a note taker, write this down. Equality doesn't mean sameness. Equality doesn't mean sameness. Because here's what's interesting. He makes a biblical argument for why he's trying to take down Moses. It's really hard when you are a Christian leader and someone comes after you and they quote the Bible on you. Right? Happens all the time, by the way. They come in, they said, hey, according to what we know about what God said, he said that we're all priests. He said that we're all these people. We should have, we have equality here we should be able to be priests too. But equality doesn't mean sameness. Why? Because God works with structure and structure demands roles. Roles are for organization. It doesn't mean someone is more valuable than someone else. Let's look at the structure right here. I am a man saved by grace. I am a sinner, quite frankly, in many ways a loser. But yet, you allow me to do the teaching to be a part of this. Why? Because this is my role in our group. It does not mean that I am more important than anyone in this room. It means it's my function. That's it. If we're going to talk about how much God loves you and how much God loves me, it's equal. If we're going to talk about how important you are to the kingdom of God and how important I am to the kingdom of God, it's equal. But in this setting, there is a structure so that God can move through a smooth structure, and that requires roles. So I have a role, and you are agreeing to the role because you want what God wants. Amen? All right. Nobody nodded. Praise the Lord. Okay. That's okay. Don't worry about it. I have faith. Remember I told you the deepest cut was when his brother and sister went after him. This is the second level. It's not as deep as that, but it's pretty rough. Why? Because it says those 250 people were family chiefs, well-known men. They were people that were respected in the community, and they were people that Moses used to respect. It's really hard when your board comes after you, and you actually put them on your board because you respected them, and they're the very ones telling you you're not okay. Just let that soak in. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but it's tough. It's tough. What was Moses' response? Well, his response is beautiful, and it's what he normally does. It says, and Moses fell on his face in humility. 
But at the same time, he was ticked off. He said, let's let God sort this out. He's like, hold up. You guys are already anointed as Levites, but now you want to be priests too? It's too much. You're way out of line. They're like, you're out of line. He's like, you're out of line. And it just becomes stupid. You just start yelling, you're out of line. Anyway, moves on. Now, at the exact same time, another rebellion picks up on the vibe, and they're like, hold up. While they got a problem, we got a problem. And that is led by three men, Abiram, On, and Dathan, the director of Hume Lake. He's way older than you think he is. He's been in the desert a long time. That's not true. Their argument, they're all Reubenites, so this is a whole different, whole different tribe. Their whole argument is when you came to us in Egypt, you said, I'm going to take you into a land flowing with milk and honey, and it's going to be awesome. That was selling a bill of goods. You're a bad leader. You got us out here. Everything's been miserable the entire time. So I don't know what you were talking about, this promise. Oh, God has a promised land. I'm not seeing the promised land. As a matter of fact, what I'm seeing is I keep thinking my kids are in jeopardy, my flocks are in jeopardy, and half the time we don't have any food, then we don't have any water, and we don't have any, and he's just tripping, and he's like, you told us you are going to do something good, and you haven't done it. You are not a good leader. Hmm. So they get into the shouting match. Moses, you said you were the big boss. You're not. You've gone too far. The other guys. Now you want to be the priest, and we can't be priests. You've gone too far. Then Moses said, well, you guys have gone too far. And it starts escalating and escalating. What is the argument really about? Jealousy. They don't like their role in the structure. Quick question for you just to be personal. Are you okay with where God has called you to be? And at any way, have you tried to inflate it so it's a little more important than what he asked you to do? Right? We kind of do this, yeah? If God says, I need you to play this minor part, are you okay with that? Or do you always have to be the quarterback? Right? Okay, one of the greatest tragedies of all preaching is that Whenever men preach, they do a sports analogy. That is sad. I'm going to do it again right now. Why? Because I'm a poor leader. Anyway, let's go on. If you have a team, and I don't care whatever team it is, if you are into softball, baseball, basketball, whatever it is, everybody's got to play their part because if you keep trying to take the other dude's part, you kind of ruin the team. We're not going to win unless everybody does their part. Okay, you're a music person. We're all in a symphony. Somebody's a little flutist, and they realize, oh, I have a dorky instrument because it's so tiny. And then they take it and start hitting the drum with it. It ruins the song. Play your part. But man, it's really hard in today's world when everything is social media and everybody's an influencer. And they're like, oh, so what do you do? Are you an influencer? Nope, I just scroll TikTok. Oh, so you don't really have any followers? No, I have three. I signed my mom up for an account. She's never actually seen it, right? 
And we all have this pressure of we got to be more important, more important, more important, right? And in America, it's even worse because it's like we were not born to follow. We were born to lead, right? Everybody's got to lead. If everyone's leading, no one's leading. Does that make sense? So they're jealous. Almost no one sees their own jealousy. You will always cloak it in a noble mission. Nobody ever goes, I am jealous, I will take you down. Nobody says that. They say, you are not following God. Hmm. But what if that's not true? Now, it could be true, but what if it's not? Or we'll say things like, wow, you're out of line because you're arrogant, or you're this, or you're that. We always kind of cloak it where we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. But what if jealousy is really the thing in our heart that's really messed up? Hmm. So... They come up with a plan. And here's the big plan. Uh, he says, all right, here's what God gave me to do. I want everybody, all 250 of you and everybody else, as a matter of fact, this other little rebellion crew, how about you play this game with us too? They're like, we're not showing up to the meeting. He's like, all right, fine. Here's what we're going to do. Everybody offers incense. That's a priestly thing. You have your little kind of gold uh, cup and you put incense in it, and you light it on fire, and then you bring it before God, and you set it down before God. That's a special thing, because the aroma is supposed to rise up before heaven. Nobody's supposed to do that but priests. He said, all right, you guys want to be priests. Let's do this. All 250 of you, let's offer it. God came down in a cloud. That means it's game time, right? Here we go. What's going to happen? He speaks only to Moses and Aaron, and he says this. Get away from all these people. I will kill them all and start over again. Okay. Did you guys ever know how many times he said that? Because in this series, we just keep bringing it up and bringing it up. And like every night I hang out with you, I always tend to bring up the same line. He keeps doing it because we're, it's 40 years. And he's like, man, you guys are just, you're just killing me here. Moses and Aaron fall on their faces. They intercede for the people. They're like, God, you can't kill everybody. It's just these instigators. Just deal with them. Don't kill everybody. And then God goes quiet. He's like, pause. We'll put a pin in that. And he said, now, Moses, back up. Get away from these people, these specific instigators, now. Moses gathers a group. He takes the elders. He gathers Korah and company. They go see the other rebellious guys. They gather together. And Moses said, everybody back up away from them. This is not me. This is what God said. Number 1628. Moses said, hereby you shall know that the Lord sent me to do all these works, that it was not on my own accord. Everyone backs up away from the bad guys. The earth opens up. They all fall in, and I'm talking about their kids, I'm talking about their animals, I'm talking about their tents, and it closes over the top. Oh, dang, that's scary, right? And then the 250 leaders that are left, fire shoots out from the tent of meeting and burns all 250 of them. Oh, that's like Raiders of the Lost Ark creepy stuff, right? And they're all like, ah, oh, melted. They're all dying, right? And so Moses said, hey, grab Eliezer's, uh, Eliezer, which is Aaron's son. I want you to go run out and grab their gold stuff out of their little ash remains. And he's like, ew, okay. He's on gloves, runs out there. 
picks them all up, and he's like, that's holy stuff. We're going to put it in the altar. It says, the next day, number 1641, the next day, the whole crowd saw what happened. They grumble against him, and they're mad that Moses killed all their leadership. He's like, I didn't kill anybody. They're like, you're a bad leader. You're realizing that this mutiny, everybody is grumbling against Moses. We got to stone you. We got to get rid of you. You would think after they got eaten by the earth and burned by wildfire that you maybe want to back off. Nope. They double down. They lean in again. God's cloud comes down again. You're like, oh, no, here we go. Right? God's ticked. I'm going to say it again. Get out of here. I'm killing every one of them right now. Now, because this has happened so close together, Moses is pretty convinced he can't talk God out of this one. Because each time he does that, he intercedes. And he's like, it's way bigger than that. God has already started wiping everybody out. He's like, guys, Aaron, come here right now. Dude, take one of these incense things, light it up, run into the middle of the camp. You've got to atone and intercede for the people because God isn't playing. So Aaron runs as fast as he can. It says the plague already started breaking out. People are dropping all over the place. He's running into the middle of it, diving to try to atone for all of them, and it works. But 14,700 people had already died. Wow. That's kind of intense, huh? You guys read this stuff to your kids before they go to bed? (laughs) Beautiful nighttime story. And then God burned them all alive, right? God said, all right, everybody, we're going to reset, okay? Uh, I'm tired of all this. Listen, you keep challenging leadership. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to explain to you my structure, my role. It's not about you, okay? I want one representative from every tribe. I want you to give me a staff. I want you to write your tribe's name on it. You can write your name on it too. That's fine. Doesn't matter. And we're going to lay all those staffs in front of the tent of meeting and let God pick who his priests really are. You keep telling me I'm taking over. Oh, I'm such an egomaniac. Oh, I'm always trying to have more power. That is not true. I'm just trying to fulfill the calling he gave me to do. So let's let God figure it out in a miraculous way so you don't attach it to me. Like, okay. They all write it down. They lay it there. In the morning, they go to check them. Aaron's staff, the staff of Levi, but specifically Aaron, has not only budded and it's blossomed into flowers and fully grown almonds overnight. God's like, okay, are we clear? Anybody got a problem with this? Oh, look, you have a regular stick. He's got a tree. Okay, everybody good? Aaron is put in as the high priest. The people are all scared out of their minds, rightfully so. And as a side note, the next story is that Miriam, his older sister, dies. It's interesting why they tuck it in right there. Because here's what I think is happening. There was an awful lot of challenges to Moses' leadership. One of them in the past, if you remember, was from Miriam. 
And I feel like God goes, okay, kid, I hear you. I know you keep getting so frustrated because everyone's challenging you. We reset. You good? All your challengers are gone now. I mean, you got a bunch of messed up people. Don't get me wrong. But the main ringleaders are gone. Okay? You can do this. Let's start all over again. Let's go. Now, no one knows how long it is till the following story, but it is likely years later. They're traveling through the desert, and they don't have any water. Now, we all, we all realize that each time there has been no water, it doesn't go well, right? Everybody freaks out. They get mad at Moses. Moses gets mad at God, all right? There's no water at Meribah. They start complaining, and the new leaders said, we wish we all died with all those leaders you killed last time. Hmm. That's a problem. Why? Because it means even though those instigators are gone, their poison remains. They're still quoting the old leaders. They even said, why don't you just kill us too? There is such a rebellious spirit of the people and the leadership. You guys, why are we so rebellious? What is wrong with us? Do we truly believe that we can always do it better? Are we just so frustrated with rules and regulations? Don't tell me what to do. Are we all just independently wanting to be our own gods? Like, what is wrong? Why are we always rebelling against something? I don't have an answer for you. It's almost like it's broken human nature, right? Well, there's no water. Everybody's freaked out. So Moses and Aaron fall on their face, and God shows up. God said, I have a plan to get them water, and this one's going to be pretty cool. We've done this once before. We're going to do a little bit different this time. Here's what I would like you to do. I want you guys to go out to the big rock outcropping, and we're talking about, you know, this big, huge kind of wall of rock. And so what I would like you to do, buddy, is go out there, and you got your little staff and everything, but I just want you to go out, and I want you to speak to the rock. I mean, this is going to be sweet, right? You're going to tell the rock to pour forth water. Are you kidding me? You're going to tell water to come pouring out. A brand new spring is going to come out of the rock. And he's like, this will be awesome, and it will buy everybody kind of their loyalty for a little while, and this is a good plan. But Moses has had enough. Moses gathers all the people together, and check this out. In Psalm 106, 32, it says, they angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. So he comes out, and he says, Numbers 20, 12, because you did not believe me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, God says, and he just lights up on them and takes the staff and hits it and hits it again, and water pours out. And God goes quiet. Now, what's interesting about that is <clears throat> there's sometimes when God needs to teach us some lessons, and for the moment, he just lets it sit. And you're like, oh, good, I got away with it. And he's just waiting for the right timing. And he's like, don't think I missed that. 
Oh, you took advantage of them. Oh, you did your thing. Oh, you gossip. Oh, you did. Hey, kiddo, you are not just sneaky. I got you. I'm watching. And at the right time, I'm going to deal with it. But you don't just kind of get away with things. I'm your dad. I'm tracking on everything. So I'll get back to you in a moment. For right now, we got some other things that we need to handle. All right. So here's what's intriguing about that to me is there seems to be two interesting sides to God. One of them, in how he relates to us, is on one of them, we always think we get away with stuff and that somehow we pull the wool over his eyes. On the other side, we tend to beat ourselves up for things that he already forgave us for. Like he moved on, we didn't move on, right? And it's like, wow, I think the answer is we need to know God better know his heart more, and spend more time in prayer seeking his face so that we can have a real-time read on what's going on. You guys, our temptation is to live our own lives and only periodically check in with God when it works for us. Is that not true? Right? Oh, I'm in trouble. God, what's going on? He's like, where were you on Thursday? Well, there was nothing going on Thursday. Oh, I was watching Netflix. You're like, well, hold on a second. You never checked in with me then, right? And, and so sometimes we're lashing ourselves and God's like, hey, I moved on a long time ago, guys. And then there's other times that you're like, hey, he didn't notice that I did. One of the interesting things about God's promise to Israel is he said, no other nation has had a God so near to them. I'm in your midst. I'm with you. I am your God. You are my people. When we all of a sudden go into the New Testament, Jesus accomplishes what he accomplishes on the cross. We have the Holy Spirit come in Pentecost and come into our lives. We are walking temples. The intimacy with God is at an all-time high. Shouldn't we live our lives as mobile temples in constant communication? Shouldn't we let go when God says to let go? Shouldn't we correct when God says correct? But that would require a day-to-day -day relationship, not just a, I live my life, I happen to show up sometime at a camp, and I suddenly reconnected. He's like, kiddo, I built you to be with you every day. And I'm not expecting every day you have to get all super religious and, and, and freaked out. What I'm telling you is, I wanna be in your thoughts. I wanna be in your plans. I wanna be in your hopes. When you make dreams, I wanna be a part of them. Whenever you have questions, before you immediately go to counsel, would you ask me? I'm not talking about just the big stuff, I'm talking about the little stuff. I mean, when you go and you go, I don't even know how to correct my kids. Lord, I don't know if I know how to parent right. Talk to me. I just want you to talk to me about stuff. Just be with me. That's really what he wants, yeah? We'll close out with the final story in Numbers chapter 21. They're going around the Red Sea and they're, trying to avoid Edom where they got in trouble before and the people get all impatient and 
there are complaining against God and complaining against Moses. Once again, this is years later. And God brings in a correction. It says he sends in fiery serpents, and they start biting the people. The people start dying. Again, it's like, gosh, do we really have to get this extreme? A whole bunch of people died. When they were called on it, the Bible says they repented and asked for Moses' help. Moses interceded, and God said, I have a plan. And he said, what's the plan? Do you guys remember the plan? Okay, so you have these little uh, red, bronzy-looking snakes that are all trippy, and they're all biting you, and they're all poisonous and everything. What I want you to do is I want you to look at that and make a model of it, but I want you to make it out of bronze. I want you to stick it on a pole, and I want you to put it in the middle of the camp, super high so that everybody can see it. And anytime someone is bit and they're going to die, they just need to look at the snake on the pole and they'll be okay. Is that not a weird answer? The last thing you want to look at after you get bit by a snake is a what? It's a snake. <laughs> You're like, come on. I'm tired of snakes. No. Look at the bronze snake. I don't want to look at the bronze snake. Look at the stupid bronze snake right? What was this all about? Because here's how it actually ends up. The people repent, and they look up, and they have healing. What's different about this story than the stories before? You are now further in the story, towards the end of the 40 years, getting closer to the promised land, and the new generation has taken over. Why is that important? Because the way their hearts respond are softer than their parents. They repent quicker. They're ready to go. And God is building his new people for the promised land. The old one were hard-hearted. They were rebellious. And they were immovable. The younger generation learned. They were softer. And they said, God, we want... I understand we're freaking out, all this stuff, we're so frustrated, we have all the problems that our parents did, but we don't want to respond the same way. And he gives them a means of healing. Quick question. Is there a foreshadowing in the bronze snake on the pole? Where's my Christological dude? Somebody said the other night. Wasn't you? Okay, you got to answer the question now that you raise your hand. The cross. And indeed, was it not quoted directly in the New Testament? Just as the snake was raised up on the pole, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, and the idea that he would be up on the cross, and every eye can see him, and is he not our healer? Is it not what he accomplished on the cross, the healing that goes out when we are bit by the sin of the serpent? right? Are we not talking about the Garden of Eden and Satan and sin ruining us? When we are dying in our sins, what ought we to do? Repent, look up to the one that is our healer, and we will be healed. Here's what's so interesting about it. It's kind of a dumb solution. Why do I got to look at the snake? Why can't I just be healed? Look at the snake. I don't want to look at the snake. Why do I have to look at a snake? Just look at the snake. I don't want to look at this. Why are you telling me what to do? I just need to be okay. All you got to do, dude, is look at the snake. I don't want to. Do you understand how dumb the argument is? Okay, let's play it again. Your sin is sending you to hell. Well, I don't want to go to hell. Your life 
is chaos and garbage. Well, I don't want my life to be chaos and garbage. Look at the cross. I don't want to look at the cross. Jesus is your healer. I don't want to do that. Look at Jesus. All I'm asking for is belief, faith, trust. That's all I'm asking. Well, it's got to be more complicated than that. It's not. I'm telling you, he's the one that wants to heal you, and he's just saying, look my way. Love me. See me. I'm the one you want. I can do all the fixing. I can do all the healing. I can do all the transformation. I just want you to stop looking at yourself, and I want you to look at me. Why do I got to look at you? Okay. You do you. Are we not dealing with the exact same thing? How sad that we had to wait for the next generation to come in. How sad that the older generation was so hard-hearted they couldn't go to the promised land. How sad that the children had to watch all of their parents die in bitterness. And God had to work with new spirits that he could pour new oil into and he could pour new wine into. How sad that their life experience didn't make them better, it made them bitter. And he couldn't do anything with them. You guys know that wineskin story, yeah? Here's the parable in case you're brand new to this. Jesus would use all kinds of different analogies and the early church writers. And so the concept was this. When you pour new wine into an animal skin, like a flask, it has to have room to stretch because the fermentation process creates gas bubbles and pressure. And so the skin has some elasticity to it. But once it's done fermenting and the bubbles calm down, the skin hardens. Then you have your little flask. I'm going to drink my little wine, right? Unless you're Baptist. It's grape juice. Cool. Anyway, so then he said, if you, if you drink all that, don't pour new wine into that old wineskin because it needs to have room to stretch, but it's already done stretching. It's already arrived. It doesn't want to do any more stretching. There's no more give. He said, if you pour new wine into it, it'll burst. You'll ruin it. Please tell me that's not us. Have you arrived? God wants to do a new thing. God wants to do this movement. You're watching all these kids. They're going to make decisions that there's campers getting on fire and there's things happening. And what, are we going to be the, the crotchety, oh, I don't do it, that's not how I did it, that's not my thing. Evangelism's always done this way. Preaching's always done this way. Everything's, a, you know why? Because here's what God's going to do. Okay, kiddo. Go ahead and rest. I'll get you home, but I can't use you anymore. Lay down. I'll go with the kids. I, all my life, I want to be in a front row seat to what God is doing. And I don't know how I have to keep my heart soft. I don't know how many times I have to be broken and recrushed and recrushed and recrushed and softened up, but I don't want God to have to use someone around me and miss me. And I'm just begging you, 
whatever you got to do to stay in the game, whatever humility, whatever, okay, I don't see how that's going to work out for you. Okay, I get. Here's what I think is amazing about those of you that have chosen to live at Hume Lake Camp. You are surrounded by youth. I told, uh, I told Art earlier today, my favorite sound is when they're doing a wreck and you can hear the megaphones and everyone's like, ah, and they're all cheering. I love that sound. You chose to live in an environment where God is doing a new thing consistently. You are around the fountain of youth. You wouldn't live here if you hated watching kids get in your way. If you had any desire to, to go to the store and not get harassed, right? You live in a place where God is doing fresh work. So I got to imagine that maybe this isn't your biggest problem. It might be. I don't know. If it is, I'm just asking you, please remain soft that God can still use you. Please don't say you're done growing. Please don't say, well, I'll just wait for the Lord. You got a lot of work to do till we get there. You ain't dead. You're not done. Yeah? All right. As we wrap up this, we just have a, a couple more minutes. Thoughts questions. You guys got anything? Reflections? Points I missed? Theological error? Anybody? Yes, sir. It was constant. And, it, and, it, and he's recording it. This is his diary. So he's recording, man, they're after me and after me and after me and after me and after me. And he was a good leader, you guys. Jesus got challenged. But I'll tell you, as a leader, challenge always hurts. I don't ever get used to it. Hey, because this is how people try to encourage me. Dude, you should expect it, bro got a national platform, you got all kinds of podcasts, you're on the radio all the time, you got this big, huge church, blah, 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 blah. You should, that's just how it is. I know. And it still hurts. I know. And I still want to quit pretty consistently. Right? A lot. Anything else popped out at you? I'm always, Yeah. You say you haven't experienced it? No, I have never experienced him serving me. Yeah. Old wine. Old wine, yeah. No, he's always got something fresh. Everything he does is coming at you fresh. So you got to be willing to have a little give. Is that not true? <laughs> your tummy's got to have a little give for the bread. And your skin needs a little give for the wine. Yeah? We cannot be rigid. We need to be willing to adjust to what the Lord wants to do. 
Because I'll tell you, if they were rigid, Pentecost sure wouldn't have gone down the way it went. Anybody remember that one? That was weird. Any other reflections? I'd just love to hear what pinged in your heart from tonight. Anything? Yes, sir. You're being around his fresh work. Uh, I would suggest to you that um, I'm a discipleship pastor. I do discipleship at our church. Everything's geared around discipleship. I'm actually a terrible evangelist. Let's be real clear on this. If I do not spend time with new believers or seekers, my heart grows hard because I'm not seeing the fresh work of God. I'm not seeing the little grow up. I'm not seeing the little spring. You understand what I'm saying? There has to be some mix in your heart to be around the kiddos, to be around something fresh, to be around adults that are just be receiving the Lord. There's something that fills your spirit because you watch them grow and it reminds you, you still want to grow. Amen? Amen. All right, we're going to go ahead and close out. Mr. Art, you're up. Nicholas, you were going to say something? There's a time, book of Romans recaps it in the New Testament, there's a time when people are so hardened towards God, he says, fine, and he releases them into their garbage. He releases them into their sin and their rebellion, and he said, you don't want me. I get it. Go ahead. That's what you see in the world around us. It's what we wanted. If we truly knew, we would never want that. Great point, Nicholas. Yeah. Yes, sir.